Welcome to another segment of Great Korea and Harmonics. Tonight, I have an array of musicians that have surrounded me right now, today, in Bill Quarry's shop. It is probably one of the most emotional and great moments in my life to interview these musicians who really were trendsetters back in the day. And they are still, to this day, playing music. Right now, I'm going to have a gentleman next to me, Bob Manning, talk a little bit about, and he is with his guitarist, Dana. And Dana will also talk about, you are the new Fenderman? Yes. But you used to be called Stanley and the Fenderman. Yeah, got it. Well, here, I'm going to hand you this mic. Give me a little bit of spill on that. How long have you been playing, actually? I started playing in the uh, fifth grade. Mm -hmm. I used to play trumpet, but then I ended up getting cancer in my lips. And... Uh, so then uh, I picked up the drums when the uh, music director called, and they said the uh, uh, drummer was sick for a, uh, you know, for the uh, grammar school, and he showed me how to pick up the sticks and play, and then from there it just took took off. I loved the drums after that. You know, you guys were in a very, uh, very great young group back in the '60s. Uh, it was Stanley and the Fenderman. Yes. And you guys, uh, tell me a little bit about that. What actually made you get into that? Well, actually, Dana started the whole band, so when you get over to him, he can explain how the whole band started. We're going to get over to Dana <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so you, you were the original, are you st the original drummer? No, they had uh, uh, Ralph Medina. Ralph, Ralph Medina was the original drummer, mm -hmm. and the guys heard me play, and they wanted me, so that's mm -hmm. how we got in. Mm -hmm. That's how I got in. Mm -hmm. So, hey, I'm going to take it over to uh, Dana. Okay. And you, you'll still be here, because, but we're going to go over to Dana, because right. Dana, since he, Dana was the original yeah, one, thank you for telling us. The whole, Dana, the give whole me a little bit of background about that. Well, uh, actually, uh, the, how it generated, actually, is kind of a blessing in disguise, because I used to play with a, uh, some guys that were three years older than me. Mm -hmm. Dennis DeLock was playing. I got Dennis DeLock. I met him at the Castlebody Community Center. Mm -hmm. And we started playing together, and then uh, got him into this band. In fact, I can't even remember the, the name of <laughs> these guys. But we just were playing for parties and things of this kind. Mm -hmm. And then um, they decided they wanted to keep Dennis and, and uh, exit me for some reason. I, I don't know. I don't know what the whole thing was. So I sat around for a couple of months and uh, finally got ticked off. And I said, you know what? I'm I'm going to start my own band. And so then. I met uh, Ralph Medina at school. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Ron Stearns was the original keyboard. Mm -hmm. And he knew Ralph, and then Ralph Medina knew Stan Stanley. Mm -hmm. And it just took off from there. I mean, we started uh, getting our, a lot of songs together. Mm -hmm. Started playing at uh, some of the different places, and then we uh, played entered the Battle of the Bands mm -hmm. in Sunset High School in mm -hmm. 1965. Mm -hmm. Uh, the guys didn't want to play, but I said, you know, that's how you're going to get exposed. Mm -hmm. uh, we won first place in that, and then it just took off and, mm -hmm. I, and at the same time how we, uh, we got Bob in it is uh, I used to play with with him in another band called Allen and the Flames mm -hmm. out of Oakland mm -hmm. and uh, I, I loved the way Bob played I loved Ralph too mm -hmm. but uh, he just seemed to be more of a fit for the band mm -hmm. so then when Ralph had to go away for a couple weeks on vacation mm -hmm. uh, I, I got Bob in there and Bob's still with and us and then they said <laughs> we got to have this guy and then from then on we just started playing uh Play for Bill at, at Roll Arena, mm -hmm. the Limited Hotel, and mm -hmm. Long Sherman's Hall in San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, just everywhere. You know? you know, you mentioned Bill Corey, and, and, and that is one of the reasons why we're all here today. Absolutely. Um, give me a little, just a little capsule about your, a memory of, about Bill Corey. Mm -hmm. He's the godfather of all these guys, all, this whole, all these guys here. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if it wasn't for him, mm -hmm. uh, I, I uh, what can I say except that I, I uh, 
you know, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be in these. He mm -hmm. gave us the opportunity mm -hmm. to play at some of the big bands, mm -hmm. open up for a lot of the groups, mm -hmm. and it was just incredible. Right. And um, I'm always always appreciated mm -hmm. Bill. Unfortunately, he wasn't our manager. Pete Paulson was our manager, mm -hmm. but I, we would have loved to have Bill at the time. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, it just went that way. Mm -hmm. But um, so we owe Bill a lot. Mm -hmm. oh. And that's why we're giving him his due today. Uh, I ran across another individual uh, just recently, and he said if, if Bill Graham is God in promotion, then Bill Corey is Jesus. And I said, wow. You know, you know I, love, I love that, you know. Uh, let me ask you, what was the first instrument you um, ever owned the guitar? What was your first guitar? I, what happened was uh, there was a next door neighbor guy who had a, an old acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. I was only seven years old, but I couldn't get my arm around it. Mm -hmm. But I used to sit there and watch him play, and mm -hmm. I just kept playing it. And then my mom bought me a plastic ukulele, and I used to strum. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just strummed with it for a couple hours on it. I mean, my mom thought kind of something wrong with me. Hanging around <laughs> all the time. And then at, uh, at the age of, uh, we, moved, we were in Los Angeles. We moved up here in 1955. Mm -hmm. My dad bought me a, a, a Les Paul Jr. from Music Unlimited right up the street up I here. I can understand. And that's when I first started uh, guitar lessons right there mm -hmm. with Joe Brule. Mm -hmm. And then uh, from then on, I uh, had a Starfire, a Guild Starfire, mm -hmm. then went with a uh, Fender Jaguar, mm -hmm. and, and that's what we used in, in the mm -hmm. Fenderman. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then of course, we all, some of us got drafted. Yes. Came back, mm -hmm. and then... Uh, the band got broke up in 19, I think. Well, actually, the band started, some of the guys were getting drafted. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so we we kind of moved, merged the group with uh, Mark and the Uptowners. And mm -hmm. it became Stanley, uh, Mark and Stanley and the Fenderman mm -hmm. from then on. And mm -hmm. then, uh, then, of course, then I went in service in 1967. And then uh, Bob came back from the reserves. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how... All oh, came back. Now you guys are playing again. Yeah. And you guys are called the, the new, new Fenderman. The new Fenderman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We played it. Uh, right now, what we've done is we we we, we were restructuring a lot of the the band. Mm -hmm. uh, we were playing here the last couple of years at Pleasant Hotel. Okay. A few of the wineries out in Livermore, uh, just the different places all in the Bay Area here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's just been wonderful. I mean, to me, it's just like, and and, and has kept me young. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. That's what, and that's what it does. It keeps everybody young. You know, we're gonna do a little bit of shuffling right now. I'm gonna bring uh, misanthropes up, and uh, I'm gonna have these two gentlemen take a seat in back of us because it seems to be like a, a fraternity here today. So uh, if you just give us a little time, we're gonna bring up the misanthropes, and uh, we'll be right back. Plant inspiration. Provide youth with the creative tools and skills to cultivate it. And you'll be amazed at what can grow. Adobe Youth Voices in the Peapod Foundation. Learn more at plantandinspire.org. Right now, you know, we're back. You can see a little bit of a, a little bit of a change. I have the misanthropes with me. I have Mark Mazard and Jay Cadis. So I'm going to turn to Mark because the reason why I'm going to turn to Mark first is because when Mark walked into Barnes and Nobles, my wife goes, "Hey, 
who's that rock star over there? And, 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 and you, know, you know, so I, I said, you know what? So I'm gonna. You, you've had a you had a, a real great run in your band back in the day. And uh, tell me what got you started, Mark. Tom Brooks, the original lead singer. Mm -hmm. um, he had they'd already put up form of misanthropes together with a drummer who didn't want to buy a set of drums. He was using the drums from the, the high school, the music uh, class, and didn't want to buy a set. So Tom didn't live too far from me. He'd walk by my house from time to time. And before I had a set of drums, I had a pair of chopsticks, and I'd beat on a, a Nagahide footstool. Made a nice little popping sound. And I'd play records and play my chopsticks. And mm -hmm. one day he came by and he goes, you know, sound pretty good. What are you playing in there? I go, footstool and, and chopsticks. And, I showed him. We, I think we put on the first Rolling Stones album. He said, well, you should, you should join the band. I go, well, I don't have a set of drums. And he goes, well, you should buy a set. So I'm thinking, yeah, that's about, you know, as far-fetched as can be. So we kept talking about it, and a couple of the other guys, Nick Powers and Jay, I think, dropped by and listened to me audition. And my first audition was a Naga High Footstool and Chopsticks. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that, yeah. you know? And yeah. so... I thought about it, and I asked my mom, I said, hey, i got to get a set of drums. And she said, oh, I don't know about that. So we bought my first set of drums at Montgomery Wards in San Leandro and Alvarado when they were still there. Wow. And um, that's how I got started. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you guys went on. Um, who chose the name? Nick. Nick Powers, the mm -hmm. bass, original bass player. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, because he's uh, probably the original misanthrope. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to go change over, Mark. I'm going to go to Jay for a second. Jay, let me ask you, what got you involved in music, and why are you still at You guys are actually still at it. You know, I really have no idea. Mm -hmm. You know, it just happened. Mm -hmm. And what, what, was, what was your first instrument, or what really propelled you to actually be a musician? Uh, again, I really have no idea. You don't have no I, idea. I really don't. It's mm -hmm. just—it's like something that's always been with me, and I, mm -hmm. it never started or stopped. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, how do you find the beginning of a continuum? Mm -hmm. So you, right now, when you were in the band, what was your position in the band? Uh, vertical, upright. No, I know that. <laughs> Most of the time. But what, what were you? What was your? your, your I guess I was the lead guitar player. You, and and yeah. what did you play on at that particular time? Uh, guitar. I understand that. Oh, what kind? A, a Fender Mustang. Okay. And what was your amplification? Oh, that went through a number of stages. Deluxe reverb, uh, pro reverb, um, and kept getting bigger and bigger because it was never loud enough. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. And then, what was some of your, as, as a guitar player, who was some of your influences, uh, guitarists? Uh, well, you know, Keith Richards, obviously. Um, but Amen also um, Jeff Beck, mm -hmm. um, Peter Green. Mm -hmm. um, well, Muddy Waters, since mm -hmm. we played That's with where him. all the fountain yeah. comes from, is from him. You know, so that was that was your guy. So when you were actually performing as a band, what was some of what was the, like your set list like? What was the the color in the in, in your set list? Who were you doing? What were you doing? Mostly Stone, Rolling Stones, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, some uh, them, some uh, Yardbirds, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and, and an occasional smattering of Beatles. Mm -hmm. When you said Stones, throw me a couple throw me a couple tunes that you did by the Stones. I could see you being a, a well, pretty Richard. much anything on their first five albums. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, are you still performing now? Yeah. You still? And what are you performing as? What's the band? Well, I do a lot of studio work. Mm -hmm. And I also hook up with the, some of the bands that I produce. Mm -hmm. So I end up just sort of filling in here mm -hmm. and there. And mm -hmm. um, I have a band that's been together 20-some-odd years, and we're still hanging in there a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of different Are you playing things. anywhere local at all? Right um, yeah, I mostly play around where I work, which mm -hmm. is Stanford University. Mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. been working with some... Uh, professors from the uh, Department of Comparative, Lang uh, Comparative Literature and Foreign Languages 
who decided they wanted to make music to get their students interested in reading the classics. So they wrote songs about Moby Dick and uh, uh, you know all kinds of literature like that. Mm -hmm. Then they came and said, "Hey, well, could you record some of these?" And and it just got more and more involved. And so mm -hmm. after a year now, I'm sort of doing gigs with them. And, in addition to all the other stuff. So. That's really cool. The printed word and the music. Just think if we all went to school, when we went back in the day to school, if it was music being taught to us because we could actually remember those lyrics so well. Mark, uh, I wanted to turn to you again. Uh, are you still playing? Are you doing anything at this present time at all? I'm still playing, but I'm not currently playing with a band. We had a, a form of misanthropes all the way up till 207, and then Tom Brooks, our original lead singer, passed away in December of 207. It's hard to believe it'll be three years next month. Mm -hmm. and and um, that kind of put an end to that uh, chapter of the music. Um, mm -hmm. uh, our bass player then went on to play with another band who he's currently with, and that's his that's his gig, so we don't have him anymore either. So um, I've been going to the local jam sessions. You know, mm -hmm. there's jam sessions all around town, Tuesdays and Thursdays, various mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never have my drums down unless I move them. They're always in my music room. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was going to say I go play with myself, but I won't say that I go play my drums. <laughs> I understand. Um, uh, but I, I, I'm, you know, as into it as I can be at this point without actually having a band, which is something we're mm -hmm. currently considering. Mm -hmm. So. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but if not, I'll continue to go to the jam sessions and sit down in my music room and play my drums. There you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the question that I asked the other two gentlemen uh, from the new Fenderman. In a capsule, I'm going to ask you both this same question. In a capsule, tell me about Bill Corey, what Bill Corey means to you. Well, Bill's like, the, Bill's like dad. He, wow. he, he was the dad. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I first heard the name and, and saw some of the promotion, it was like, this guy's bigger than life. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tom Brown was our manager back then, and uh, we kept asking Tom, get us a gig, get us a gig, get us a gig with Bill at the Roll Arena or elsewhere. And I don't know who was procrastinating, Bill or, or Tom, but eventually we did get a gig at the Roll Arena. We went on to play there three or four times, and we played at the Longshoreman's Hall with the Sons of Chaplin and the wow. Seeds, and we... Yeah. Uh, Played, um, You're pushing too hard. Pushing too hard. Yeah, that was that was an exciting. Uh, but uh, yeah, first time I met him, he was just what I always liked about Bill, and still like about him now. He's just approachable, very nice guy, real mm -hmm. laid back. And even though he was as big as he was in the day, he never acted like, well, hey, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. cool. It was always all about running the show and right. keeping the musicians happy and having good music. And um, I'm I'm really. I'm really glad to have been a part of that era mm -hmm. and, and run around with people like Bill Corey and Tom Brown and some of the other folks that, uh, you know, hadn't been for them. Yeah, hadn't been for them. Don't tell them where we would be. Mm -hmm. Jay, I'm going to pose the same question. What 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 is your feel of Bill well, Corey? Well, you know, I really, I really have always thought that had Bill Graham not picked up when he did, mm -hmm. that, that it would have been Bill Corey. Most definitely. That everybody knew. Mm -hmm. and, and it really should have been, mm -hmm. frankly. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of my take on it. So right now we're going to do another bit. We're going to do a musical chair thing. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. And I'm going to bring up some other musicians. There's always a moment. The moment you decide to get involved, to get engaged. This is my American story. When you teach someone to read, they have a, a sense of self-fulfillment. Seeing family, friends fall victim 
of gang violence, drugs, it definitely made me want to serve. There was a hole in the ground, and by the time we left, there was a house. I realized that these kids were not getting a meal. It is so easy to give back. I don't have a lot of money to help people, but I do have something. I have time. You can give any skill you have. Get up and do something. Just imagine how strong a society we could be. Every one of us has a role to play in making our communities and our country stronger. Discover yours. Help us continue to make a difference in the life of our nation. Go to serve.gov and find the opportunity that works for you. And this message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service. While right now I'm surrounded by another two individuals used to play back in the day, I have Ken Sims from the Just Six, and I have Walt Dutchover from Crystal Garden. These two guys I've seen play, but the gentleman to my right is a guy that I've had the pleasure and honor of opening up shows with him. Ken Sims, um, you're a great guitarist. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to turn this, I'm going to give you the mic and I'm going to let you hold it and I'm going to ask you some questions. Thank you. The Just Six, what what made the Just Six who they were back in the day? Well, the Just Six immediately had a sound that other bands didn't have. We were so fortunate to have really good musicians. We had, in my opinion, one of the best drummers that ever came out of the East Bay, Sal Chicardo. We had a great bass player who didn't just riff on the root. He knew how to play bass. We had a lead vocalist who was not only a great vocalist, but he had that personality, that stage persona. And then we had the Cantrell brothers, absolutely one of the best rhythm players, Mick Cantrell, and probably the only keyboard player in the area who really knew how to play the keyboards. We were the first band that incorporated a B3 into our music. We were the first band that I can recall that carried our own PA. And we were well known for being the best equipped band around. I mean, think of it, this is a blue collar area. Yes, it literally. is. Literally. Mm -hmm. We had six Super Beetle amplifiers. One for each member of the band, two for the PA system. We had the B3 with the tone cabinet and the Leslie's, mm -hmm. and we had good musicians. Mm -hmm. And I had been a musician by that time, probably 10 years, played with everybody around here. Barry Carlos and uh, the Nightcaps were my idols in those days, mm -hmm. and I ended up playing with them. Chuck Ernst, the best guitar player ever came out of this area. Mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Cicero played with him. And the Cantrell brothers were my neighbors, and they were literally kids. I've known them since they were two years old. Wow. Our fathers came out of the Navy and settled off Tennyson Road in a, in a set of track homes that had three streets. And that was the entire South Hayward. At that time. At, that was it. There was nothing. <laughs> I mean, we went to the store and charged groceries, mm -hmm. walked to Tennyson Elementary, Tennyson High School, right. and that's where we all mm -hmm. met each other. Who was, when being, showing that history right there, who was your influence? I know you named, uh, named a few guitar players, but who was your biggest influence? What, what gravitated you towards? Well, I know the day exactly. Um, 
I had a little harmony Stratotone guitar. We had a lot of country players in our area. As a matter of fact, at the end of our street, there was a guy named Tex Lancaster who played the old Garden of Allah with Black Jack Wayne and Chuck Wayne and all those guys. Wow. And Johnny Cash stayed with him a couple of weeks trying to sober up. <laughs> Great story. So I actually picked up a guitar, and I got a job when I was in high school working at a um, TV repair shop. I went and saw Barry Carlos in the Nightcaps, and the guitar player was Jerry Anderson, who's passed on, mm -hmm. and he was playing a Les Paul, mm -hmm. and I couldn't believe the way this guy sounded. Mm -hmm. So I had a job, and I went down to Medicaid Music, mm -hmm. As a 13-year-old kid, no problem, I can buy a $1,000 guitar and amp. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll just go in and tell them I can pay $50 a month. Mm -hmm. So my mother went with me, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got it, and my mother is a huge blues fan. So when I, like I got it. home that day, she had me a record by B.B. King, Albert King, Freddie King, who I thought were all brothers. You know, not brothers. I understand. <laughs> yeah, I understand. You know, understand. Uh, Elmore James and a guy named Pee Wee Creighton. And I had an uncle who played guitar, and he taught me steel guitar rag. Well, in steel guitar rag, there's most of the riffs that are on those five albums. Mm -hmm. And I thought, God, I know everything everybody else does. <laughs> you know? So I started out playing the blues, and I immediately put a band together like two weeks later, mm -hmm. and we played seven songs, and we went out and played our first gig out in Pleasanton at the Berry Farm. And, and a funny thing, he was paying $10 a day mm -hmm. for, for each man, and we didn't have enough people to, to get enough money to pay the two guys right. that were carrying all the equipment because right. we were all too young to drive. Right. So we took the two drivers and made them hand clappers. They bought the uniform, the black pants, the white shirt, and they just stood on stage and clapped their hands. <laughs> so we got the money to pay them so they would carry our equipment. So I started off as a businessman immediately. There you go. <laughs> Ken, I'm going to ask you, uh, because we're going to go over to Walt, um, <clears throat> are you still playing today, obviously? Yes, I am. Yes. Um, what is your band? Today it's called Sims. Mm -hmm. I was in uh, Just Truckin'. We did a couple of movie soundtracks, toured all over with all the major groups, and then we became... Well, excuse me, first we were trucking, and then we became just trucking. Mm -hmm. We had some of the members of the Just Six in the band mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over to Walter here. Walter, you were in a band called Crystal Garden, weren't you? Yes, sir. All, all the time when I think of here, you could hold the mic, sir. Um, what influenced you? What got you into music? I, I read a little excerpt in here. Uh, was it... During the time of the Beatles getting to Ed Sullivan, or exactly. what was it? The Beatles. Okay. The Beatles. And you did. could explain that was the big impact. what was what was it, what what did what did it make you feel like when you seen that? Uh, the music was incredible, mm -hmm. and it was. Um, I mean, I had to listen to my older cousins' music and everything else, mm -hmm. but the Beatles just struck me mm -hmm. real hard, mm -hmm. and it did a lot of the kids I was going to school with, mm -hmm. which was, one of them was Leonard Silver, mm -hmm. uh, a drummer, who had a band already, mm -hmm. and. Um, actually was looking for a rhythm guitar player. Mm -hmm. So I took my Knox guitar and Silvertone amp up to the house. Wow. And um, with all three of my chords that turned into maybe 25 songs, mm -hmm. um, I was able to make the audition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, and it was just a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, it kept us out of trouble. How long? It sure did, doesn't <laughs> it? Sure how, did. How, did, how long was Crystal Garden actually? Well, 
I was with them for approximately five years, and I believe they uh, went on for another four years after I left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they did uh, a big concert up in um, Oregon called uh, the Vortex, mm -hmm. and they also played over at the Fillmore. Mm -hmm. um, we played in a lot of different uh, places, thanks to Mr. Corey. Mm -hmm. um, he opened up the world to everybody. He <laughs> sure did. You know, and I'm going to ask you the question because I'm going to, I'm going to get it back to Ken, but I want to ask you this question that I've asked all these musical gentlemen. Give me a capsule of Bill Corey. What does Bill Corey mean to you? Again, he opened up the world to the <laughs> different venues he had, mm -hmm. um, the exposure that all the bands got. The East Bay wouldn't have been known um, unless uh, Mr. Corey started all that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're here now doing this. Exactly. That's, you know... And who would have thought then? <laughs> you know, who would have thought back that we'd we'll all be sitting here paying homage to this man? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Ken that same question, but thank you, Walter. Thank you. Ken, I'm going to ask you that same question that I've asked everybody. Um, what, what, what does Bill Quarry mean to you? Well, we knew immediately when we started having some success that we had to hook up with Bill because Bill was the man. Mm -hmm. And I knew Barry Carlos, as I said, and Barry and Bill were uh, close friends. And I talked to Barry and said, hey, we got to get a job with Bill. So Barry was playing for Bill at the Carpenter's Hall in Hayward, so they booked us. So we're there playing, and um, I can't remember uh, Castro. I can't remember Bill Castro. Bill Castro, the union rep, comes That's walking what I like. in. I like right. Yeah, and he goes, uh, where's your guys' union contract? And we go, huh? And Bill goes, Ken, where's your union contract? I go, I don't know what you're talking about. You're playing at a union hall, and you don't know what a union contract is. So the next week, we went to Fresno and joined the musicians' union. So because of Bill, we became professional musicians, literally. And every good show was around. Every big show that I can remember, the Yardbirds and all these wow. people, them. We got to meet and work with that. And can you imagine, 18 years old, and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page were playing in the Yardbirds. Unbelievable, yes. And came to our house afterwards and hung around with the band, you know. That is wild. These are things that would have never happened without Bill. <laughs> and the two big shows at the uh, Saddle Rack, the reunion shows, mm -hmm. and people like Tower of Power, Cold Blood, they all look to Bill as a man who gave them a heads up. Mm -hmm. And he's still helping bands, and this is a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. And life isn't as long as it used to be. Right. So we're definitely enjoying every bit of it. Mm -hmm. And big credit, at, for me anyway, has always been Bill. And we've stayed friends over the years. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I see him every now and then mm -hmm. and get him to do some printing. And every now and then he'll buy a bag of jerky or something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Right now, we're going to do a little bit more musical chairs, but as you can see, the love and respect that Bill Corey has is unprecedented. So right now, I'm going to ask these gentlemen just to hold for a moment, and we're going to bring two special guests up here. I'm a big believer in the power of we. We got each other, and that's We can tackle the tough challenges we face and build community through service and volunteering. It's time for you to raise your hand. Go to serve.gov and get involved in something you believe in. How will you raise your hand when they call your name? Are you with me? We weren't born to follow. Hey, right
right now I'm back again with two legendary figures, of course, right here, right now, is Mr. Bill Corey. Bill, thank you so much again to, for letting us have this opportunity and all the love that you have by these fellow musicians. And I have a man here from Ace Records, Alex Palau. Palau. Palau is here, and he's going to talk a little bit about what it means to know Bill, but also what he's done in, to make this still be a vibrant historical experiment that he's been doing. He has a book here called Love is the Song We Sing, and then we also got a CD, You Got Yours. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Alex some questions, and uh, Alex, if you may, what made you come here and re out of respect of, uh, for Bill, but what actually got you involved in the East Bay Sound here? Well, uh, Gregory is really, uh, like most Brits, Europeans, you know, we're obsessed with American culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we get it music, movies, TV, everything. And, you know, America is still the promised land, you know, for the rest of the world. So I moved here about 20 years ago, and straight away I want to know, you know, where's Bill Quarry, where's the Bo Brummels, where's the Chocolate Wash Band, where, all these guys, because I already knew about that stuff. We were, I'd already scoured the history. Mm -hmm. um, so I made a point of seeking out Bill, and the more I got to know him and find out about history and speaking to a lot of musicians such mm -hmm. as we have been earlier, uh, found out what an important guy he was. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I can sort of see the bigger picture in that, you know, you have to have the these enablers, people that make it happen, create scenes. Mm -hmm. And they have, you have to have, I mean, of course, you know, Bill Graham and Chet Helms from the Avalon and all those guys, they get the sort of historical kudos. But I know, having researched, that Bill was just as important in his day. And, Most definitely. Uh, and he, um, you know, he created a circuit and an and environment for bands to kind of thrive. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, you know, that all kind of coincided with the baby boomer thing and the Beatles, the British invasion, that just rush of like, you know, hormones translating into, you know, uh, ro you know, teenage rock and roll, which for younger people like myself, the one there, you know, all we have to judge it on is the music, the records that survived and the, you know, the photos, mm -hmm. the images, and we're just in love with it because I grew up in the late 70s when it was disco, mm -hmm. you know, when <laughs> I, I look back at the 50s and 60s and think, you know, what, you know, Incredible. What, you know yeah. I, I, not that I wished I was born then, but it's like, why can't I have something as cool as this? You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I was, I'm sort of a child of the punk rock generation, mm -hmm. so I had a little bit of excitement, but it, it didn't have the innocence and the joy that the, the 50s and 60s uh, obviously had. And that's, to me, it's a thrill every time I hear records from that time or mm -hmm. talk to the guys and the bands and everything. Mm -hmm. I, that's communicated to mm -hmm. me. So, you happen to uh, help produce this. This uh, CD, you got yours. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what, tell me what how how this all came about. Well, uh, I've been involved with uh, Bill and with Bruce Tarsler, mm -hmm. um, helping them out with the book mm -hmm. uh, that they put together, uh, mm -hmm. attending all the interviews and finding musicians and just kind of helping <laughs> see it come to place. And the whole time, I as a reissue producer, uh, I wanted to have a sort of an audio accompaniment. Mm -hmm. So this CD. Uh, uh, I put together and includes most most of the bands uh, that were on in the book, such mm -hmm. as the Beethoven's, Harbinger mm -hmm. Complex, Just Six, Peter Wheaton, the Bretman, mm -hmm. those kind of groups. Anyone that had a you know a strong enough recording, um, mm -hmm. because to me, again, as someone who wasn't there, mm -hmm. what I've got to relate to is the music, really, mm -hmm. the music mm -hmm. and the records. And mm -hmm. some of these groups, they made one little forty-five. That, for instance, Bill, the Harbinger Complex a band that he managed, he funded a couple of forty-fives of theirs, and those are valuable records now, mm -hmm. and they're known all over the world for being mm -hmm. sort of archetypal garage band, 60s punk, whatever right. you want to call it, and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's very important to have that audio element so we can hear, you know, the excitement mm -hmm. of, of these bands in that era. Mm -hmm. you, know. mm -hmm. you wrote a book, got a book here. It looks like a, 
more or less, a, it's a story, but it also has a lot of pictures. It's called Love is the Song We Sing. How did this all come about, and how did you, how did this all, this well, this book right here? Well, this, uh, this set uh, is a, actually, it's actually a, a, a Greg, a four CD box set. Mm -hmm. um, uh, just, uh, I wanted to design it as a sort of a, a, a book with a lot of information and, and uh, photos and stuff. Uh, basically, I put this together in time for the, uh, the 40th anniversary of Summer of Love, whatever you mm -hmm. call it, a couple of years ago in 2007, uh, because I knew there was going to be a lot of nostalgia for that particular sort of uh, anniversary, but I also knew there'd be a lot of cheesy tie-dye kind of, you know, hey, the 60s, blah, 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 thing, which as a student and a, and a fan of that era, I've always, you know, I know that's not the truth, you know. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to pay respect to the musicians of the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I put together this package, which uh, Rhino Records very <coughs> kindly you know, um, made it so we could put it something really classy together with photos and stories and, and you know, good quality audio and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud to tell you that after it came out, it got a nomination uh, for a Grammy in the historical category. Um, Excellent. Which uh, I didn't win, but to get the nod is, uh, is nice. Won. And so, well, uh, but I look at it as a Bay Area musicians one. Mm -hmm. They all got, everyone on here got mm -hmm. a, like, you know, Bill Bill produced a record on here, so Bill is a Grammy-nominated producer. <laughs> yeah, uh, Way to go, Bill. <laughs> he played tambourine on it, so he's a Grammy-nominated tambourine player. Uh, yeah. So you, you actually have a love uh, totally for the American culture. Mm -hmm. West Coast because it's it's a lot of it's here. Obviously, well, love all, all of America. Of I mean, I love soul and R&B just as much. Next month, I'm off to Muscle Shoals in Memphis to go digging in the, in the vaults down there. Too. How lucky! But uh, I have a because I live in the East Bay. I have a particular mm -hmm. you know sort of loyalty to mm -hmm. the his, musical history of this era area. Yeah. In in a in a capsule, what does Bill Corey mean to you? Well, Bill. As I've said a little bit earlier, Greg, he's he is the enabler. He's the guy that made it happen by creating an environment for bands to be able to play and and thrive. And uh, and the thing about the East Bay scene that was different to San Francisco was that East Bay, the East Bay scene was a lot more real. You know, the sort of the the kind of fancy light show freakiness wouldn't have necessarily uh, held sway in this side of the bay because it was blue collar working class <coughs> people. Once mm -hmm. they love soul and R and B as much mm -hmm. as the British invasion stuff. Yeah, I think Ken said uh, that about being a uh, blue collar worker. Right, and mm -hmm. well. And you know, it's uh, there's a there's a, rea a real kind of a authenticity to East Bay music, mm -hmm. and you know, Bill, uh, along with Tom Brown and Pete Paulson and Larry White and a lot of the other guys that were sort of movers and shakers at that time, Bill was the king, and he could have you know if he wished to pursue it, he could have been as big as Bill Graham mm -hmm. if he wanted. I mean, but it, Bill's too much of a nice guy, you know. He's he's mm -hmm. not cutthroat enough, you know, right. uh, and which you kind of have to be in in in, uh, in the music business, as mm -hmm. you I'm sure you know. Yes, uh, and so um, really, but if you look at it from a historical point of view, Bill Quarry is the guy that made it happen for for so many musicians. So many, yeah. so many. Well, thank you, um, Alec. Um, in closing, I would like to thank Bill. I'd like to thank this an array of musicians, historians, author. Bruce, will you stand up just so we could just say hello to you for a second? <laughs> this is the man that also makes it happen, Bruce Tutchler. This guy has actually did these books and with the great research with a lot of people. But again, once again, this is part two of a trilogy about Bill Quarry. We hope to get more musicians in. I am totally in humbled to be in the presence of all these fabulous, young, and vibrant still musicians. God bless y'all. Thank you so much. This is Gregory Korea from Harmonics. We'll see you again.